0: As we lean into this Easter break, some of us undoubtedly can't ignore what might lie ahead for both national budgets and our own. Some hints were clearly offered by the Reserve Bank Governor, Dr Philip Lowe, at his press club speech this week, suggesting the interest rate pause could be temporary. We'll see. What are the other portents on the horizon, good and bad, that it's wise to understand? One man who's been paid to take a close bird's eye view and then explain it to readers over the past 40 years is my welcome guest for his considered reflections. Tony Boyd's been the respected Chanticleer columnist for the Australian Financial Review. Last Saturday was his last column. He's stepping away from full-time business journalism. Tony, welcome. Yes, thank you for
1: having me, Geraldine.
0: Uh, Look, key risks, if you wouldn't mind outlining, for people, and then I'll get on to key opportunities because there are both sides of the coin. What are you concerned about?
1: Well, I'm concerned about the way the world is turning itself into blocks, economic blocks, that um, I suppose trying to be self-sufficient and not um, integrate with each other in terms of trade and foreign direct investment. And... um, This concern um, was confirmed this week when uh, I read the IMF Economic Outlook, and they've released that, and it says that the um, fragmentation of the world in terms of foreign direct investment is actually a very uh, bad thing that could harm poorer countries and lead to less transfer of technology to uh, countries that that need it. And just generally... um, we're seeing that the tensions between China and America, mm. leading to countries trying to align themselves on either side of that, and then of course at the heart of it is those two countries keeping their technology to themselves and trying to guard themselves against sharing it with each other. Which previously that was the reason why China, you know, was able to bring so many people out of poverty was its mm. economic growth and its uh, membership of the WTO and, and sharing. Uh, Uh, technology with other countries.
0: Do you think Australia will get caught up in that?
1: I think Australia is caught up in it. I think um, there've been some very interesting articles published recently about uh, the end of globalisation. And I think globalisation did peak just before COVID. So in about 2019. And since then, most developed countries have been taking whatever opportunities they can to bring parts of their supply chain back on shore and guard themselves against huge gaps in in the delivery of core and essential materials and of course as one of the biggest exporters in the world uh, our economy is very reliant on exports we as a country have got to be concerned about whether or not our exports are going to be welcomed in countries that may have ideological differences with us
0: and does that filter down into people's average budgets which is what I've posed to you
1: well, yes, in the uh, home budget, I suppose we're not uh, reliant on overseas for our food, but we are for most advanced manufacturing, although the country is building that up through the the Minister, Ed Husic. I really admire him and what he's doing and especially his $16 billion National Reconstruction Fund. But day to day, I suppose people these days are facing choices about what car do they buy mm-hmm usually there's an electric car is being considered an electric vehicle do you buy one that is from the world's largest manufacturer of electric cars from china (laughs) they have a lot of products they're supplying i mean i go to uh, bunnings regularly as a sort of home handyman and uh, very hard to find anything that's not made in china so looking at it from a business perspective I, i think that boards of directors and ceos have to be thinking very hard about what are the implications for them of these changes that are happening in in geopolitics, which will affect the average household ultimately.
0: And I suppose we don't need to import capital the way we did in the past because of our huge superannuation booty that we've got here now. Is that on the plus side? Would you say that has been a real growth area, an asset for Australia or not?
1: It's definitely a fantastic asset that we have through the efforts of, I'll go back to the, you know, the grandfathers of uh, superannuation, Paul Keating, Bill Kelty, they have basically ended the income deficit that Australia had. But of course, with a stock market only worth a trillion, and um, annual inflows of hundred billion, and total savings assets of three point four trillion, we have to put our money offshore. There just aren't enough places in Australia to, to invest. invest it. For example, I think um, a survey found of the top 14 superannuation funds, they have $50 billion invested in China. Now, that's wise in terms of diversity, but they're probably going to come under pressure from people who say that, why are you engaging with uh, Chinese companies? Why are you backing them? It's probably actually a very sensible strategy to diversify around the world and across countries. But yeah, this savings pool in Australia is is a tremendous asset. We just have to be careful that, we don't ignore the opportunities in our own country
0: well i was going to ask where are the gaps in political and business management if you reflect over 40 years where could we be doing better
1: when i started in journalism and for for most of the the 40 years i worked as a finance journalist australian business was incredibly parochial and uh, ceos never really thought about the world outside except for a lot of uh, terrible misadventures by um, companies like Westpac, AMP, uh, more recently West Farmers in the UK.
0: NAB. Yes, uh, well, oh, NAB—that was time. a terrible one. Yeah. Um,
1: that was almost like Silicon Valley Bank. That was a, a poor management of matching of assets and liabilities that they did in America um, with a company called Homeside. But the point being, I suppose, is that. Nowadays, business and and boards are far more outward looking. They have to be very conscious of geopolitics and they've got to be uh, thinking of the implications of what's going on in the world, including what is the AUKUS agreement going to mean long term for how they manage their businesses in Australia.
0: And you haven't yet mentioned the renewables transition or the transition to a new world of energy. I'm, I'm intrigued as to why you haven't.
1: No, well... Because <laughs> um, I would have thought that's
0: I, an exceptionally I suppose difficult thing. It, on it's, the
1: it, there's probably uh, two things that are that are very much have been on my radar over the last five to six years. That is the energy transition. It's also uh, I've tried to campaign for more women in business and uh, in the last six to eight months of my writing the Chanticlee column, it's been about technology and chat GPT. One of the reasons I've always liked interviewing, for example, Andrew Forrest was because of his uh, grand vision Vision. that he has about uh, how Australia can transform itself. And it's interesting that the two CEOs that really talk about this the most are him and Mike Henry from BHP. And Mike Henry says, well, 30% of our exports are vulnerable because they will be essentially removed by Uh, the electrification of the world through solar and wind power and other forms of renewable energy. And he's referring there, I think, to our coal exports and our LNG exports. And we really have to think hard about how we're going to replace them. What Mm -hmm. are we going to do? What is our strategy? And I'm not sure anyone's really uh, figured well, that rhetoric, out yet. Well,
0: no, I think that the rhetoric's very good um, from some people, but making it happen is tricky. Some of our firms, it's worth sort of calling out, I think, the occasional success. This week, it was announced that L'Oreal, the big firm, the huge multinational, acquired ESOP. A lot of listeners will have used ESOP products for $3.7 billion. Now, it was an eye-watering sum of money. That was set up in Melbourne in 1987 at sort of Skincare, home care, very upmarket sort of prestige product that had brilliant marketing, and that's been a huge success story. You know, starting in more or less suburban Melbourne, that's the sort of brand success if ever there was one. Has there been more of this than you expected to see?
1: Look, I think the uh, the success of a company like that in the luxury area of uh, of the world is is quite understandable, given when you look at the demand that's emerging sort of for those products but when i look at the companies that have done the best globally and potentially are going to be takeover targets later in in their future perhaps uh, csl i think is is a fantastic mm. australian company that was uh floated on the stock market in the 1980s
0: that's a uh, true biotech success story isn't
1: it it is that's mm. a, that's a company that once again the, the green light for that was given by uh, paul keating so that's a good example I think companies like ResMed, who have the sort of sleep therapy, uh, well, sleep assistance products very heavily uh, sold in America. I think Cochlear is a very good company, another one that's, uh, you know, developed um, a very strong international business, including a a very state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in China. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of Australian, well, sorry, there's not a lot, there's a handful of very good international Australian companies that have the highest quality products that probably themselves will become attractive to international buyers.
0: I wonder if um, you would care to reveal what have been your highlights and lowlights. Like in terms of, you must have made some extraordinary contacts over the years in your uh, in your 40 years. A lot of the best business stories are never written. I was told that years ago because they're just too <laughs> riddled with legal problems. What do you take away with you as uh, a re- highlight or characters?
1: Yes, look, uh, I suppose uh, if I look back over my career, some of the, the most impressive CEOs, for example, I've met uh, are people like uh, James Gorman, the Australian who runs Morgan Stanley. Oh, yes. um, I think Shamara Wickramanayake, who is uh, the CEO of Macquarie, is is a very impressive person. But when I look at events that have occurred, I suppose one thing that has characterized my career that i suppose is, is ironic in a sense was the number of corporate disasters that i i wrote about uh there was the westpac uh, collapse in 1991 at the same time a state mortgage went broke there was uh, the state banks all went bust. i was the it editor when the uh, tech wreck happened and there was uh uh, I was working at Business Spectator with Alan Kohler when the when the global financial crisis hit and Lehman Brothers collapsed. I suppose if I look back at at a lot of those events, is that they were a sort of a short, sharp catalyst for immediate change. And um, although the 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 impact of the global financial crisis lasted longer, today it's very different. It seems to be we are in a slow motion sort of downturn that is highly unpredictable, incredibly volatile, and nobody's really sure when, uh, you know, the next uh, little thing will fall off. Now, we had the Silicon Valley Bank go. We then had Credit Suisse taken over by UBS. At the moment in America, they're talking about um, half of all the $3 trillion worth of mortgages back in commercial real estate will have three and a half to four percentage points increase in their costs. That's going to have tremendous impacts on the valuations of all those unlisted mm. assets. Um,
0: so we're not resilient, that's for sure. Well, there's
1: just the, the, the this tightening cycle we're going through combined with the uh, impacts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, the COVID sort of fallout mm-hmm. in supply chains has left so many parts of the economy vulnerable to uh, what can happen Uh, potentially next in terms of changes in valuations, people moving money quickly as happened Mm. in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank. I suppose I'm I'm generally an optimistic person, but just watching what's happening, how share markets have really tended not to um, factor in a recession in America, uh, yet that's likely to happen. There's things yet to occur which don't necessarily add up in you know, in, in your current analysis, it just looks as though the world is, is is far too positive for what might be coming in the next twelve months.
0: I know you don't give financial advice, but a lot of people will say, oh, I might put everything in cash. I don't know whether you agree with that. But, I mean, you know, in other words, you, cash and gold, <laughs> if you had it, the opportunity.
1: No, well, I mean, I'm not uh, – I've, I've, there's always reasons why you shouldn't be investing and, and people who just sit back and watch will never have the benefits of compound interest. But you're right, gold is, is at a record high in Australian dollars at the moment. People seem to be uh, shifting into that as a, as a safe haven, But that may be part of a bigger story, as I mentioned earlier. The the bifurcation between China Mm. and the United States could be resulting in central banks and others around the world rethinking, you know, the um, uh, supremacy of the U.S. dollar. It's not necessarily a currency you want to hold when they've potentially got a uh, you know default on their debt.
0: Oh, I see a default on their debt. Yeah, right. Okay, well. (laughs) <laughs> it was a bracing finish. Uh, thank you, Tony Boyd. Enjoy your retirement.
1: No, well, thank you for having me, Geraldine. It's been a pleasure to listen to your program each Saturday for which many, you'll many years. Which will continue to do. Yes, for sure. And will do.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Tony Boyd, the Chanticleer columnist uh, for quite a while now and also part of a podcast called Chanticleer, which you might like to access as well.